You're listening to Black Neon Digital Podcasts, Episode 2. Vicky Lou, Central St. Martins and Cartier-trained modern thinking jeweller. Welcome to Black Neon Digital Podcasts, a series of thought-provoking conversations with the people behind brands and businesses that make a difference. I'm your host, Jodie Muta-Hamilton, and I'll be getting to know visionaries who are at the forefront of fashion tech and ethical style. I'll also be exploring our relationship with technology and the impact it has on craftsmanship within the fashion industry. I believe the future of fashion is to find a holistic approach that harnesses technology whilst keeping crafts alive, to push the boundaries of possibility and to support each other to create businesses that can provide growth without harm. I hope listening to our discussions inspire you to be the change, start the business you've dreamed of, discover new ways of thinking and connect with other like-minded people who are doing something in their own vision to make a difference. Come on the journey with me, keep listening, subscribe via iTunes and SoundCloud, join the conversation via Instagram at Black Neon Digital, Twitter at Digital Neon and our website blackneondigital.com. Everything about Vicky Lou's eponymous jewellery line makes my heart race that little bit faster. Design, colour, modern elegance, all made in London. Vicky's exposure to craftsmanship from a young age, coupled with her training at St Martin's and experience at Cartier and Swarovski, has enabled her to create stunning award-winning collections. Through this podcast, we'll discover how Vicky's approach to business comes from a place of true respect and understanding of craftsmanship and how she balances this with exceptional commercial awareness, combining in-house design and prototyping with outsourcing and technology to achieve success. Hi Vicky, thanks so much for joining us today. I'm looking forward to understanding a bit more about the complexities of being a standout brand in a luxury jewellery market. Hi Jodie, thanks for having me. Thanks. A little bit just before we go into how you make your stunning jewellery a commercial success, can you take us back to growing up in Kuala Lumpur watching your father make shoes? Can you describe how this has been so influential to you? Well, um, uh, it's a long journey back, I must say. (laughs) So um, uh, I was born into a shoemaking family. Uh, My dad has been making shoes uh, before I was born. So growing up... um, I must say, my dad is always is so passionate about his sort of practice, which is just shoe design, the shoemaking, and the whole business point of a shoe business. So when, as I grow up, I'm always dragged on to his business, whether or not I like it or not. Um, and uh, every time we go shopping, there will be a shoe shop, and he would just go in. And um, and we look at the shoes, how it was made, how it was, whether or not it's com- comfortable to wear, whether or not it's well made. And every summer or uh, holiday time, we, I will always be dragged into his workshop um, doing work experience. And from that, even though at the time being a kid, you don't really enjoy that kind of, you know, it's not something that interests you then on because, you know, when you're younger, you care about other things. Um, he was training me very young, and uh, from that, uh, I, I I am trained with an eye for detail and craftsmanship. So when I see something that is well made, I, I will know that. And uh, that applies to not just shoes, but also other things like any craft, like uh, 
fashion design, which initially I wanted to to train in, um, and 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 so that sort of brought me there. And as I grew up, I still continued doing that, and that's probably at the time when I'm fifteen, sixteen, in my teenage years, where I have to decide or quickly decide of a career path that I would maybe go into. And I remember specifically at one experience that made me sort of realize that I wanted to do sort of jewelry or embellishment, that sort of thing. It was an event that um, my dad had um, in Malaysia and Kuala Lumpur. It was for probably the 20 most glamorous women in Malaysia and we had a task for making 20 pairs of bespoke shoes very very beautifully made some of them have diamonds and precious stones on it and the buckles made of gold and uh, that's my first time that I was um involved in using such precious materials and especially on on the shoe which is actually quite unusual and quite um quite outlandish even for, for in, in terms of intrinsic value. Um, so I was tasked uh, with five pairs of shoes, um, which is the five pairs of shoes ha- that has diamonds on it. And um, I remember having a, a bodyguard next to me, and that was quite interesting, <laughs> working with precious materials like that. And uh, the shoes were made and... Um, I designed and I embroider, and because I was trained uh, uh, as an embroiderer at my dad's company, I can, you know, make make that pair of shoes. So, so I did. But on that day, um, something quite unexpected happened because I spent all my time making those shoes. I think probably spent about two, three months on on them from start to finish. And on a day, the jewellery were the um, highlight of the show. I mean, the women were, were wearing really beautiful wedding, uh, sort of like uh, in evening gowns and they had diamond colliers on them. And they were wearing our shoes, which were very beautiful, if I might say so myself. But um, they were covered in, in the long dresses, so it was totally hidden, even though I spent so much time on them. So I was a little disappointed, and and at the time I, I sort of questioned, like, I really wanted to to do you know a body adornment in that way, and uh, and after discovering using precious metal, that that changes everything, and I thought. I think I'm going to do jewelry. So that that was Amazing. So that's, that's that's the <laughs> that story. That was the beginning. That was the beginning. Amazing. It was it was a um, painful experience. Quite quite interesting. Life changing, I must say. Yeah, massively. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, from that, you then went on to um, to train at Central St Martins and work with Cartier and with Swarovski. Mm. Can you just tell us a little bit about each of those and the sort of different experiences and. And yeah, why you chose St. Martin's and and so forth. So after that uh, incident with the 20 20 most glamorous women in Malaysia, I sort of have this thing bottled inside me. And I was probably uh, 17, 18, that type of age, and um, looking to going to study a art degree. And of course, my dad was expecting me to go to uh, studying shoe design, which there is one really famous one in London College of Fashion uh, called the Cotwainers, mm-hmm. uh, where Jimmy Choo um, trained and, and whatnot. And so I was almost expected to, to, 
to go that to route enter, to, yeah, yeah, to enter that route because you know my I have a family business. It's so obvious, and I think it's a good continuity to my dad's business, which was great. But I never really sort of am so passionate about mm. shoemaking. I, I love the shoe making process. However, I, I feel like it was really restricting in the, in the sense that it's always to the feet and how it should be comfortable to wear. And that, for me, it's a bit limiting. But I really do enjoy decorating the shoe. So the the, the sparkly uh, element of, of the shoe, I, I really do enjoy. The process to get into, say, any U, UAL, so University of Arts London, is to go through a foundation program. And I did not tell my dad at the time, but we, but he sort of expected me to go to LCF, but I have to do this foundation anyway. So I entered the foundation and secretly chose my path as jewellery. And then <laughs> it's just sort of led on and I got into the degree like immediately. And um, and my dad was like, OK, I, th- I think he was really disappointed, uh, like secretly disappointed. But I, I, he didn't say that to, to me, but I knew I knew that he wanted me to take on the business, but I, I didn't. But I, I really am happy with what I do. So I think he's proud of what I've achieved yeah, as well. Sure. So I then went on to Central St. Martins. Um, a great, great three, four years. I must say, um, it really pushes the boundaries uh, in in terms of design because I came I came from a very sort of Asian uh, mentality background, especially in in shoe design business. So we specialize in very commercial shoes that is always about quantity and not so much about the design side of things. Um, even though and everything we make has to be beautiful, so that was really sort of ingrained in me when I came first came. To, from Kuala Lumpur here to London. And Central St. Martins completely changed my my way of thinking in terms of being a designer. Like, you know, they question you, why do you have to do this? Why does it have to be beautiful? But what's the idea about this being beautiful? Like, does it have to be beautiful? And what material are you using? And, and that makes you question, yes, I mean, things have to be beautiful, which it still applies to how I design. But I need a concept sort of to justify why I made it this way and that that in a way sort of trained me to go into or it sort of sort of de- look further into depth into yes. your inspiration and concepts not just surface level beauty almost yeah I guess. so I think by by having ha- having that um, training I think it's sort of like I, I take this training and apply it to to my practice um, to this day, and 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 I think because of that, I stood out amongst the designers, and it's a very saturated, saturated market. And the only way to stand out is not because you're a good business person; it's about your products in the end. So I think I'm glad that I go through that. It was painful, but really, definitely I mean, worth. Yeah, it, the, the energy was. It's just content. Everyone was com- like it. It was a competitive environment, but because we throw ideas in, there's just ideas coming out from just piece of paper and it's it's just amazing like um yeah so so that definitely mm. sort of grounded you in, in yeah, your practice and so forth it is very grounded uh, so central st martin's even though it's a very you know um forward thinking um art school i must say uh they also have projects uh live projects with major companies such as Cartier and swarovski which um as jewelry students we get to participate and as competitions, which is actually adding to the competition mm-hmm. within the students as well. So um, there was 
a, a competition with Swarovski and it was about using the crystals and also using, using the gemstones. And the prize was um, you get an internship with Swarovski and that was the prize and lots of crystals as well. Well, I think it was the internship that everyone eyed on. And um, I mean, I'm very lucky to be chosen as the winner. So and then I went on to Swarovski headquarters in London and, and trained with them. So that was quite interesting. And, and coming from a very, again, like um, from a very commercial background and into something that's quite conceptual, that's sort of changing me in a way. And then back to Swarovski, which is actually, if you think about it, quite commercial company. And, um, and that's a very different way in terms of branding and how a business is run. So it also... I. I in terms of design, it's not something I would learn from Swarovski, but in terms of what they've done with mm. their corporate identity, their corporate responsibility, their heritage, it's something that I would like to. Well, some it's something that I aspire to mm. to 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 have in in my yeah. my company. Yeah. So the the way they've run it, it's very yes. clear and admirable and, and yes. all that kind of thing as well. Mm. Um, how how does that contrast then to say Cartier? Because obviously they're very traditional and their their branding and their imagery is it is traditional. Um, and obviously, was your experience there? Did is that where you learnt to um, do your drawing? You know, your beautiful hand drawings and things. Was that quite a traditional or element, or had you learnt that previously? Um, we we did. Um, we were trained in um, sort of gouache technical drawing, mm. like that. But um, I think it was in Cartier that we learned it properly. So Cartier is a very well-established um, jewellery house. It has that heritage. I remember, I'm not sure this is uh, saying out loud, it's going to get me in trouble, but I'm I think sure I, I'm, I'm, I'm allowed to say this. <laughs> so they have, of course, the jewellery part and they have the watch part and they have the handbag section, like the leather accessories. They even have cosmetics or perfume I rem- remember that on my first day like just clearly on my first day of my, of my internship they were just launching this new perfume and they were giving up perfumes to all the staff and I'm like this is amazing this place um, and um, I mean benefits aside like this um, and there's also another another side of Cartier which is not anything of the above but the heritage side how to preserve their, their you know they have their archives of important pieces and that's something that only comes with time and of course come with with the with these um sort of elements comes a very sort of i guess conservative sort of way of um running a business because you have to sort of keep that heritage and i think with their branding they have you know the 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 fonts their logos are all quite traditional but of course you're keeping to to that that uh, heritage, which is fine. Um, and however, that being said, I mean, it's a very traditional company, but the people who they employ, they're very young and energetic. Um, they also use a lot of um, technology, which is like CAD, or, and, but also in combination with, with um, really traditional craftsmanship. So just being in there, like just being in that, environment sort of makes me think you know they still embrace 
that new technology, which is actually quite good because mm, you can have the combination of the two yes. the tradition the heritage yeah. and still be forward looking and yes. kind of use what's around mm. the designer will always draw the you know design on paper at first and we still learn you know um the gouache technical drawing which which then the designer teach me how to do it really properly. Yeah. And um, I remember I thought I was really good, but actually I knew nothing when I was there. So that was a bit of a realization that I'm not that great. But um, I quickly learned it and um, I still use that skill um, in, in my design process. And I think, ha- and, and with that drawing, then it's passed on to the cat technician to, to be made and I think made even better because you have that two combination, mm. so that's really great. Mm-hmm. So the the combination of the technology, the CAD mm. and the printing, yeah. um, and also you use a lot of stones, so a lot of stone mm. setting. Um, some jewelers are, are slightly sceptical um, or judgmental, perhaps even about combining these two elements. How um, how do you find the right balance for you in your practice, and how does this come about? Because you're very, you know rooted in tradition and your mm-hmm. background and obviously your training, but also very open to sort of new ways of working and the possibilities of capitalising what's around you. You know, is that is that a, a kind of way of furthering your business or it's something that you believe in or, or how do you manage to make the balance for you and your business? Well, um, this is a very interesting question because when CAD first came out, I mean, it's been going since about 30 years I believe and it's only about 20 years that jewelers start using it so it has gone by a while but take in consideration that jewelry techniques has been around for a thousand years and some um, really sort of skilled more older generation craftsmen has been trained in, in making by hand and suddenly this technology just changes everything and I think if I were in that in their shoes I also will feel a bit sort of prickly and just wondered like so I've changed all this while and then now this thing is going to take over so I, I can definitely feel the uh, resentment some some of them may have but um, change is inevitable you know you will there will be something that was coming up uh, um, you know along and not just CAD and 3D printing um, I recently found that you can 3D, t- 3D print titanium which is Awesome, (laughs) and um, and the same sort of stability and and everything within it. um, The final product, you know, it's still an ongoing research in 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 sort of that technology. So, I mean, um, a friend of mine has actually done it. So, and you can actually anodize it as well. So that's very exciting, and not just a three D printed piece of titanium, but a three D piece of titanium would hinge on it just printed out like that so for for that to happen i it's it's something that you question a lot whether or not wow that's uh will is it going to be skynet that sort of thing um but um like i said change will come and i believe that if you embrace change you know you will lead your design to a different way but even in in a different level and different layers so I I do not rule it out. I I still use CAD even though I don't do it myself. But I feel like you know having CAD could 
translate my design more effectively and more efficiently as well in terms of commercial budget. And this is in terms of business point of view. So that's why I yeah, use it as well. Yeah, because that's a sort of element, isn't it? It's mm. when you start breaking down your costs and kind of how you make profit and things, you know, you're very, as a jeweler and a designer, very commercially aware, mm. um, you know, and also it's it's how do you get the best of both worlds? So where do you cut your profit margins or, or where do you sort of spend spend and splurge as they call it um you know could the technology help to cut back and then perhaps you can pay more for the stone setting and things like that because i know you work with traditional stone setters as well and i remember in a discussion before that we had you said you know why would i set my own stones when they've been doing it for 30 40 years i haven't got that experience and and that kind of stuck with me um quite a lot because i thought you know this makes you stand out and and makes me think you really understand your business and where to kind of you know like I said spend and splurge um so you so you work within sort of Hatton Garden and out of the Goldsmith Centre could you just tell us a little bit about how um how that's been your business wise like how influential being in that particular area has been to your business and how helpful in terms of locality and and so forth that's been for you well Hatton Garden has this massive history behind it, and um, and with Hatton Garden, um, it's very traditional. You have that again heritage, which I brought up a lot because I think I aspire to to be become one of those houses with heritage, and being in that area sort of lead me into that that path. And um, the Goldsmith Centre. Um, a little bit about Goldsmith Centre. So Goldsmith Centre was founded actually five years ago. Um, I won't say exactly to the date, but um, I think just earlier this month, which is about June, they celebrated their fifth birthday. And uh, it's a charitable branch of the Goldsmith Company, which dates back almost 750 years. So one of the oldest company in existence, still in the same trade, which is, again, heritage. And being in in that sort of et, um, environment, it's something that it inspires you and you're in good hands. So that that's why I, I chose to be there. And, um, and they still take on very traditional sort of programs like the apprentices program, which then you'll be bound to the master for five years and have day releases. So for me, um, from a very different background, I'm from Asia, remember, having this um, livery company that's called the Worshipful Company of Goldsmiths. And and for me, that's it's something that I will never experience, say, if I don't come to London or I don't think I can experience it any parts of the world. So having that very English tradition um, that I like to associate myself with, with my company. Your design aesthetic is rooted in the classical Japanese philosophy of wabi-sabi, a concept centred on acceptance of transcendence and imperfection. Does this philosophy touch other areas of your business, not just the design aesthetic? And do you apply this philosophy in your own life too? Ooh, that's a very interesting question, Jodie. Um, 
So wabi-sabi is a Japanese philosophy of beauty can be imperfect, um, impermanence and transient. So I use that in several of my projects from, from university. That, that was the starting point. Um, a lot of people have mentioned to me, actually, oh, Vicky, if you look at your design, it's not really wabi-sabi because it's, it's very controlled and um, it's not really imperfect, imperfect. It's actually really perfect. And in a way, I will say I use an element of wabi-sabi um, because I am a person who has some OCD. And I do like my pieces to be very controlled. But the concept I use has that element of wabi-sabi. My collection Fly was inspired by an image that I took in Hyde Park. And it was a bird that was spreading its wings. And I took that photo and it flew away immediately. So that was the starting point of my project. And I always go back to have a look at the photographs because if you take a lot of photographs in your phone, you never really go back to see it again. But I always somehow go back to see that photo. And that was the starting point. I thought, okay, it was about the bird. I researched a lot about the bird, the feathers, the the wings and the colors of the bird. But it wasn't about the motif of the bird, actually. It was that very fleeting moment that I captured and then it disappeared and that's I guess the wabi-sabi element in, in my in my designs so how can I project that in my in my pieces my, my pieces in, of jewelry so I created the, these pieces which are brooches and at one angle you see an image of a bird because that was the, the starting point I still like to keep that element and at one angle, you see the bird, but the the body is always constantly moving. So as you turn away, you don't see anymore. So as an audience to that piece of jewelry, you might see something, but if the person's wearing it, turns around, you don't see anymore. It's almost like a double take and the moment's gone. So that was the fleeting moment that I'll, I, I like to project. Um, and uh, But in terms of having wabi-sabi in my life. I mean, wabi-sabi could be really pretty much anything. I mean, the element of impermanence and imperfection, they're everywhere. So I see things in not just whether or not they're beautiful, but if I see a, you know, a, a, a stack of roses and they are very beautiful, but if they sort of wilted and sort of are sort of dying, they're equally as beautiful as not just when they're alive and beautiful and it applies to the modern society as well like young girls are more beautiful than an older woman I don't agree so it's something that is you apply in life as well or that's a very very good example called the the art of kitsungi which is um, if you break a, a bowl and if you stick it back together with gold paint, it's still equally beautiful. That is wabi-sabi. And I think, I think that it's just too, uh, too much... About acceptance, basically. Yeah, as well, uh, too it? much waste also in the world. You, you break something, you throw it away. Mm. But as sort of times go by, the, like Mother Earth is slowly sort of crying because we're just a very consumer-based consumer world, mm. I think. So, 
So having that that um, yeah, philosophy. Yeah, the, the openness and acceptance and yeah. kind of understanding that things can be imperfect. Yes. Um, yeah, it's it's a good way to approach life. So. <laughs> um, your your jewellery obviously isn't branded as sort of ethical or sustainable and things like that. But, you know, from my opinion, the the way in which you approach making it therefore makes it ethical um, because of the sort of method and the traditional craft and all that kind of thing. Um, however, you we've discussed previously about sort of past experiences or your perception of the jewellery industry as a whole um, being it can be extremely unethical. Could you just tell us a little bit more about your experience of that and what you think that the jewellery industry could do to change it being unethical or make it more ethical or make it easier for jewellers to work in a more ethical way and kind of talk about it? So, Jodie, the the whole thing about ethical jewellery is so broad um, there is the element of the material itself, whether or not it's it's from the earth, or whether or not it's it's been processed by a certain person. The processes can also basically call us as ethical or not. The manufacturing, so it's a very very broad subject, and um, I deliberately did not brand myself as an ethical jeweler because I believe every single piece of jewelry is never fully ethical. And that's why I don't want to sort of mislead anyone into thinking I pan my own gold and that is the most ethical way, by the way. Um, and for me it wasn't it wasn't my USP as well. But I try to to educate my client and and bring awareness. And I think that's the only way we can be sort of in control. We control and monitor and we tell our clients, we educate them. But in terms of in my practice, um, they are made in London. So I pay a very fair wages to my craftsmen. And in that way, it is ethical because they will have a holiday. They will have... Um, a weekend off and they have fair trade wages Um, and that's in a sense ethical but in terms of material I I try to use as much of um, stones that is cut by Swarovski so Swarovski actually they cut their own gemstones not crystals they are genuine gemstones but they have that corporate responsibility hence I know directly or I can trace back where the stones are it's from them whereas other like other stones like diamonds that that becomes a bit modeled because it's you have the Kimberley process which control as much as possible especially since we have that blood diamond thing um, but still, it's from the earth. Whatever you do, you dig the earth, and it's still, for me, that is unethical already, and there's nothing you can change. However, if you reuse stones, say, from your grandmother, I think that is quite ethical, and you're not creating more waste or more processes to, to the earth. Um, and I, I encourage my clients to do that sometimes, especially you have so many unworn jewellery, and it's always keeping somewhere in the box, and why not use that? Thing that's already there and 
it's it's like having vintage fur. It's the the animal's already dead. It gives its life to humans, and you don't kill more. You just continue having that. So that's um, mm-hmm. I guess that awareness. It's yeah. a very broad and uh, controversial at times. Mm. This, this it's, uh, subject. it's extremely difficult to yes. navigate, isn't it? And um, yes. you know, I think again, going back to the point about acceptance, we we've got to accept that we are imperfect in that, mm. but strive towards something better. Um, have you have you tried to use um, aside from the Swarovski um, mm-hmm. like recycled metals? Are they that easy to get hold of, or what's your experience in that? Um, because again, it's it's sort of like you have, they might be recycled from like five different necklaces and into one, and then how do you even know where the one necklace comes from? You know, I don't know if that's even how it works properly. But um, you know, I, I had a, a few projects, a, a few bespoke projects where, um, so it was about this couple engagement rings, engagement and wedding rings. Let's just say that. Um, they're on a budget, and this is quite interesting because I, I this is what I proposed to them. Why don't you melt pieces of jewelry from your families, creating a new piece of jewelry for you, who is going mm. to be a family, like a unity together yes. as well as yeah, a coming together of yeah. these two families, yeah. which is quite good in terms of symbolism, and it's an idea that could ap- apply to anyone and every time. It's it's really personal to them, so um, like. The last project with them was he proposed to her with his grandmother ring. It was a very old-fashioned ring with emeralds, diamond emeralds. Um, It was clustered together, and she obviously did not really like it, (laughs) I must say, because it's quite old-fashioned, and they melted down with her granddad's ring, her, her late granddad's ring. So you have that very lovely symbols and um, it worked really well. Um, it wasn't very difficult to work with. It's still metal which you can melt down together. And I, o- I always melt it down uh, with a... How should I say? I always melt it down with a craftsman who is credible. And um, we know exactly if this is, is the, the ring, ring yeah. and that is his, her late <laughs> yeah. granddad's yeah. ring. So I will be very clear and honest. If that doesn't work or if the pieces of jewellery hasn't got a hallmark, then I would not advise them to go ahead. It has mm-hmm. to be the same heritage of gold. Mm-hmm. So that is the only okay. criteria. Yep. But it works really well. It, sound, it sounds amazing. I mean, I wish I'd known, known about you when I got mine done. Oh, well. <laughs> um, <laughs> Anniversaries. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, your what? Who do you say then typically buys your jewelry? Um, because I know you offer an appointment only service rather than selling to shops. Is that right? Yeah. So who would you? What number one? Why have you chose to do that route? And number two, who buys your jewelry then? Because you obviously can have a really close relationship with each individual customer. Yes, Jody. So um, I like to offer. The personal and human touch because um, the way people shop now is always online or through departmental shops even say if you do go through that route it's always you never sort of see the designer selling their wares unless you go into your own shop or their own studio that's the only way they can offer you that 
human touch and you deal directly with with the designer and you know how or you know how they think about you or the way they think about a design and I think being in a very bespoke setting it's a very interesting process and it's always very satisfying for for the client to see the piece from start to finish and I I'm really or I do really like to go hang out with my clients. I go to their houses. I chat with them. It's almost like a friendly relationship. And we talk about, you know, how's, how's your kids? And it's not something that you will get if you, got, if you go to, say, a departmental shop and buy something. So, and the pieces that I produce as well, they are, quite, they are one of a kind and at a certain price point. So if you buy something that is of a certain amount, you would like to touch it, feel it. And jewelry is something so personal that you would like to sort of hold it in your hand, try it on before you make the decision whether mm. or not you want to purchase these things or if you want to make something from scratch, from some ideas that you have in your head with the designer, you can develop that into something completely, completely new but still to your initial ideas and um, and I like to just focus on that because I like to make something that truly matters for for me as a designer but also my client who when they own this piece they've gone through this very satisfying pro- uh, processes so that's why I you choose, yeah, I choose yeah. to just yeah. go through this route again another mm. sort of real unity of both you and the person yes. kind of yeah really nice um, just thinking about uh, you and your business in the next few years, um, in terms of scalability for a business or trying to grow your business, um, the bespoke model is obviously how do you replicate that or how basically how do you make more money as a business? Because if it's bespoke, then you're always going to have that interaction with you and the, the mm-hmm. client. Do you just try and see more clients and then outsource more work or, or what's... How how are you going to deal? <laughs> how are you going to grow your business, Vicky? <laughs> if you need to, I don't know. You know, is, um, that, is that an aim? Do you want, uh, want it in terms to... of scalability? Um, even though when I said like I aspire to be Swarovski, aspire to be sort of Cartier type mm. jewelry houses, it's the heritage that I really do like. However, I do not vision my business to to be in that scale or to the scale of Pandora where you you can buy the jewelries of anywhere in the world. That was not really my... That's never been your intention. Yeah, that's never anyway. my, no. my vision or mission, if you put it in business plan. Um, my vision is to create something that matters. That's always been the first thing I like to do is to create pieces that is something you will cherish forever um, like a modern or future heirloom. Mm-hmm. And because with all this unethical jewellery businesses, I won't say who, but they're just, in in terms of like world consumption of jewellery, it's just so much jewellery churning out from factories every single day. And I don't want to do that. I want to, if I were to dig the earth and destroy the earth, I want to make something that's beautiful. I want to make something that is 
inspirational. I want to make something that, because of that, you know, you you aspire to buy that piece and not something that you buy once and throw away after 10 times use. So I want to do that. And I don't want to scale my business so large that I have to deal with so many clients. So I would like to keep it actually fairly small where I or me and maybe a couple other staff could still be with a client and discuss things and throw ideas and if I scale my business, it, this will disappear. Yeah. This will never work. So I aim to ha- just have a small atelier by appointment only and that, and create something that's truly magical for, for my clients. That is the aim and um, not scaling. <laughs> yeah. So what piece of advice would you give to someone wanting to start out in the luxury jewellery business? I'll say be passionate. <laughs> be passionate about what you do because you you will sort of encounter many, many difficulties. Um, but don't be disheartened. Keep going. Be still passionate about what you do and never give up. I think that's, that's one way. And also having a very strong design identity, that, re- that really helps. Mm-hmm. So people recognize who is it from. Yeah, know who you are and yes, project it basically especially in this yeah. very saturated yeah. market so I think that's my advice thank you lastly your own personal style is very minimal and modern I've um, met you a couple of times and always impeccably dressed in black not with any jewellery on I've not seen any form of jewellery or earrings or watch or anything as yet um, can you tell us a little bit about this and why you don't, you know, kind of adorn yourself on a daily basis in your amazing jewellery? Um, I think, well, I do actually wear a black watch and I'm, I am dressed fully in black all the time. I don't think anyone actually seen me other than black, but I do have a red lip on. So that's some pop of colour <laughs> and accessory, I must say. Um I don't know. I, when I was younger, I was fully adorned in jewellery. I loved making jewellery from beads and crystals and had chandelier earrings. But as as I sort of develop as a designer and if you're working with materials, it's more a pragmatic way because if I'm wearing lots of jewellery, it's just not really going to be practical in my daily, daily um, work. So I choose not to wear a lot of jewellery and I feel like if I'm wearing a lot of jewellery it can distract from from my clients because they see something and they have a certain mm. ideas and um, so I didn't want to give them that distraction but I do wear certain very sort of special pieces um, that is again is more um, of a symbol than and adornment, if I might say. So I have a ring that I I had since I was a baby, like a baby ring, I guess. But now I wear it as a pinky ring sometimes. Um, so that's something I would wear still. Um, but most of the time, I don't wear yeah. jewelry. <laughs> it's it's uh, I don't know why. It's it's in the way for yeah. me. Yes, I do love them. Love jewelry. <laughs> Just never wear them. <laughs> it is very very funny. Thank you, Vicky, for your time today and showing us what it takes to be a truly modern thinking jeweller. I look forward to being captivated by your jewels for many years to come. Thank you so much, Jodie, for having me. Cheers. 
I hope you've enjoyed listening to Vicky's story today. From her approach to inspiration and research, to how she offers a personal touch for each and every client, we can begin to understand how dedicated Vicky is to her craft. Her training at Central St Martin's, Cartier and Swarovski have undoubtedly been instrumental to building her brand. Identifying and adapting what she values from each experience, she has shaped her own way, creating a brand she is proud of and can develop over time. Not every business is about growing or scaling beyond what we can directly manage ourselves. For Vicky, luxury is about client relationships and creating something meaningful that will last forever. As she says, if she's going to take raw materials from the earth, it has to be for a very good reason. Join us for our next podcast where we meet Cora Hiltz of Revonver, where luxury fashion and sustainability go hand in hand. Cora's in-depth understanding of environmental politics and realistic, joyful approach to life makes a great listening. Remember to keep up to date via Instagram at Black Neon Digital, Twitter at Digital Neon and our website blackneondigital.com. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to our podcast series via iTunes or SoundCloud. Look forward to you tuning in next time. Music